Second Chronicles 7.14 is a familiar passage to so many of us. It's been quoted, overquoted, lifted out of context sometimes, but uh, the, the admonition by God our Father is the same to all of us. What do you see when you look at the American flag? Not everybody in America sees the same thing for sure. What do you see when you think about the United States of America? I'll be honest and be the first to admit that when I see the flag or when I think of the United States, I don't see a politician. I don't see a political party. I don't even think about Washington, D.C. I think about the greatness of this nation in times past and up to the present that has been forged on the faith of its people in Jesus Christ. That's what I see. When I'm overseas and I pass uh, on a mission trip and we pass an embassy and I see the American flag flying in that U.S. embassy, it really, really puts a lump in my throat. I st I'm still one of those guys that has a lump in his throat when we're at a parade or when we see Oh Glory passing by. It's just... It's just that nationalistic pride. But it's not pride in, in who we are necessarily as a melting pot of a nation. It's the pride in what Jesus Christ has fashioned in this nation as literally a city on a hill. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I heal from heaven, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. You know, we have historical revisionists that try to rewrite history. They try to put it into a, a form and fashion that so many people would find palatable, if you will. Uh, the reality is that we have just about tried to write out anything about Christianity and the Christian faith of our founders in this nation of ours. Our greatness is not on our diversity. Our greatness is not on just who we are as individuals. Our greatness is founded on the principles that we know in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's been that way. It's always been that way. Well, allow me to read you some excerpts from different people. I'm always hearing that we are not a Christian nation, that we were not founded on Christian principles. You've heard that argument. That we really are just a, a nation of whatever. Well, from the early times of Christopher Columbus, I'm going to read you quite a bit. The word Christopher comes from the word that means Christ-bearer. Christopher Columbus was convinced that God had called him to carry the gospel to heathen and undiscovered lands. He wrote in his journal a passage from Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 6, for he wrote, Listen to me, O coastlands, and hearken you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name, and I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And I do believe that that prophecy through Isaiah was directed to the United States as well. He said in his journal, Columbus wrote, 
it was the Lord who put into my mind, I could feel his hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, including uh, or ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scripture. No one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior if it is just and if the intention is purely for his holy service. The working out of all things has been assigned to each person by our Lord, but it all happens according to his sovereign will, even though he gives advice. He lacks nothing that it is in the power of men to give him. Oh, what a gracious Lord who desires the people should perform for him those things for which he holds himself responsible. Day and night, moment by moment, everyone should express their most devoted gratitude to him. The first land Columbus discovered, he christened San Salvador, which means Holy Savior. And this was his prayer. O Lord Almighty and everlasting God, by thy holy word, thou hast created the heaven and the earth and the sea. Blessed and glorified be thy name and praised be thy majesty, which hath designed to use us, thy humble servants, that thy holy name may be proclaimed in this second part of earth. On every island on which they stopped, Columbus had his men erect a large cross, quote, as a token of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in honor of the Christian faith, end quote. Columbus believed that he was definitely on a mission from God, sent to the West to discover lands and to make sure the people knew about Jesus. Come forward another 100 plus years. In 1620, there were some 102 pilgrims, Christian pilgrims, that set foot on the ship, the Mayflower. They were seeking religious freedom in a new land. And all of these 102 signed this Mayflower Compact, part of which said, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. I don't see too much gray area there. John Winthrop, 10 years later after the sailing of the Mayflower, an English Puritan lawyer and one of the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, wrote why the Mayflower Compact would work. He said, This love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary, as absolutely necessary to the well-being of the body of Christ, as the sinews and other ligaments of a natural body are to the well-being of that body. We are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. And thus we ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. And that was written in 1630. In 1682, Charles II, the King of England, demanded that Massachusetts repeal restrictions on suffrage. That was that only church members could vote. I kind of like that, actually. <laughs> and King Charles II wanted the colonists to swear allegiance to the crown, administer justice in the king's name, and let only Episcopal clergy form churches. The colonists refused, quote, to give up the ark of the Lord. So in 1773, amid mounting pressures toward independence, 
One crown-appointed governor wrote to the Board of Trade in England, quote, If you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none, nor any governor, but Jesus Christ, end quote. The cry in the colonies became, No king but King Jesus. No king but King Jesus. Would that be our cry today? A few years later, in 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, it just seemed like they were at a stalemate and there was no compromise uh, whatsoever among the attendees. And at which point, through frustration, Ben Franklin rose to speak. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if... A sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice. Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little, partial, local interest. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing government of human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, or conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. At George Washington's inauguration on April 30, 1789, he requested a Bible be brought and placed his hand upon it, took the oath of office. This was his address. It would be peculiarly improper to omit in the first official act my fervent supplication to the Almighty Being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affair of men more than the people of the United States." Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been a token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected of a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Well, what about some other quotes? Let me read you a few that you might be interested in. Abraham Lincoln said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. When I left Springfield, he wrote, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son the severest trial of my life. I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there 
consecrated myself to Christ. Yes, I do love Jesus, Lincoln would say. Well, what about a few others? Did you know that 52 of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were orthodox, deeply committed Christians? The other three all believed in the Bible as the divine truth, the God of Scripture, and His personal intervention. This is the same Congress that formed the American Bible Society. Immediately after creating the Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress voted to purchase and import 20,000 copies of Scripture for the people of this nation. Patrick Henry was one who was the firebrand of the Revolution. He will always remember, be remembered for give me liberty or give me death. That was in 1775. However, one year later in 1776, he would make this statement. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religious, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that reason alone, people of other faiths have been afforded freedom to worship here. Thomas Jefferson even wrote, I am a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. I have little doubt that our whole country will soon be rallied to the unity of our Creator, and I hope to the pure doctrine of Jesus also. George Washington, in his prayer, people have asked, well, was he a Christian or not? Well, here's his prayer that he wrote in his prayer book. O eternal and everlasting God, direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sins in the immaculate blood of the Lamb and purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. Daily frame me more and more in the likeness of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that living in thy fear and dying in thy favor, I may in thy appointed time obtain the resurrection of the justified unto eternal life. Bless, O Lord, the whole race of mankind, and let the world be filled with the knowledge of thee and thy Son, Jesus Christ. Consider these words. John Adams, our second president, who also served as chairman of the American Bible Society, in an address to military leaders, he said, we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and true religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. How about our first Supreme Court Justice, John Jay? When he talked about selecting our national leaders to preserve our nation, we must select Christians, he said. And these are his words, and I quote, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, was the sixth U.S. president. He was also the chairman of the American Bible Society. And on July 4, 1821, President Adams said the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States, wrote, The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them in faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal 
in our country. 1782, the United States Congress voted this resolution. The Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Holy Bible for use in all schools. Some of you may not know William Holmes McGuffey. Remember the McGuffey Reader? The McGuffey Reader was used for over 100 years in the public schools with over 125 million copies sold until it was stopped in 1963. President Lincoln called him the schoolmaster of the nation. Here's what McGuffey wrote. The Christian religion is the religion of our country. From it are derived our notions on the character of God, on the great moral governor of the universe. On its doctrines are founded the peculiarities of our free institutions. From no source has the author drawn more conspicuously than from the sacred scriptures. From all these extracts from the Bible, I make no apology. Now, if that's not enough for you, let me throw something else out at you. Of the first 108 universities founded in America, 106 were distinctly Christian, including the first Harvard University. It was chartered in 1636. Now, here's the original Harvard Student Handbook. Rule number one was that students seeking entrance must know Latin and Greek so they could study the scriptures. This is what the student handbook says, and I quote, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of this life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, verse 3 and therefore to lay Jesus Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Proverbs 2.3 For over a hundred years, more than 50% of all Harvard graduates were pastors. They've strayed just a little bit from that, I think. So, here we are with this great nation of ours, and there are several quotes that I would share with you this day. Continue. William Penn wrote, those people who will not be governed by God will be ruled by tyrants. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, I consider the chief dangers which will confront the 20th century and now the 21st century, of course, will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without regeneration, and morality without God, and heaven without hell. Well, it was Alexander Tyler. We look at where we've come to at this particular point. I'm going to lay it on you. You probably have heard this in times past but it's well worth repeating. The year was 1787. Alexander Tyler was a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh, and he said this to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years ago. He said, A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts. 
from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. Then he continues by saying, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, these nations always progressed through the following sequence, and listen to this carefully. From, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from great courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. How did we get to that place, folks? And what is God saying? Uh, for the next few minutes, I just want to share with you what his word says. These are his requirements. He said, in my people, four things will humble themselves. Put God first, others second, self last. Humility is the absolute recognition that I am not in control. I'm not the captain of my faith. I'm not the captain of this ship. I'm not the one who's in control of my destiny. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hum humility means that I'm willing to turn the reins of leadership of my life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It means that I am willing to acknowledge the fact that I have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in his sight. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. It is that humility that we humble ourselves before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There at the foot of the cross, we kneel. Secondly, we pray. Prayer is something that is vastly needed. We're trying to, to emphasize this on not only Wednesday night, but in our gatherings every time we gather. It is something that we need on an individual basis and on a corporate level. We need to be a praying people. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So we understand humility, humbling ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ, prayer, seeking God's face asking him for his direction, seeking his leadership, knowing who he is, understanding his will, getting our lives in line with that will is what it requires. Turn from our sin. That's what repentance is. It is uh, agreeing with the Lord through the Holy Spirit about what he says is true. It is acknowledging him, confessing it before the Lord, and allowing God to Come in and forgive us of our sins and to heal our land. Turn from our sin. Now, that's a conditional promise that God has. You do those four things, God says the condition is that you are faithful in these four elements. The promise that God gives us is that I will hear from heaven. All of our prayers are heard by God, whatever they are. Sometimes you know, I've heard people say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit to the believer intercedes on our behalf to the Father. He searches our hearts. 
He understands. He plumbs the depths of our agony sometimes and our stress in life. Sometimes we just don't know how to pray for any given situation. The Holy Spirit makes intercession. And so we, we seek his face. So he hears from heaven. He forgives our sin. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we lie and do not live according to the truth. That same 1 John 1 says. And then ultimately, he will heal our land. He will heal our land. Psalms 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Well, you know, I know what the solution is. You know what the solution is. It reminds me of a story I heard about a little girl named Lisa. Lisa's daddy was trying to, to help her with a geography problem. But his little five-year-old daughter didn't understand it. He said, here, here, honey, here's a puzzle map. If you can just put these pieces of paper together in the right order, this will show you our whole country today. After just a few minutes passed, Lisa returned surprisingly in such a short period of time, handed him the map with all the pieces correctly fitted and taped together. The father was surprised and asked, how she was able to finish so quickly. It was easy, Daddy, she said. On the back of the paper is a picture of Jesus. And when I got all of Jesus back where he belonged, then our country just came together. So we know that the solution doesn't lie in Washington. We know that it's not in Tallahassee or in Hillsborough County. We know that the solution of our nation's ills are not politically guaranteed. We know that they are only guaranteed through the Scripture if we will follow God's admonition, turn away from our sin, turn to Him, humbly throwing ourselves before Him and asking Him to forgive us of our sins, the land begins to heal. How does it happen? Well, just put Jesus back where He belongs and it all comes together. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. This is your opportunity to come forward and do so. Maybe you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've never followed him in baptism by immersion, which is a, in obedience to what our Lord asks us to do. This is your opportunity to come forward and indicate this is what you feel the Lord's calling you to do. Maybe you're not a member of this church. It's high time that uh, you just come forward. Say, this is my church. I'm going to be a part, a functioning part of this church. I want to help the Lord in whatever way I can, and I want to help him through this body of believers, this family of fellowship. This is your opportunity to come forward as well. And for all of us, it's a time, whether in, our, in the pew or here at the front altar, that we acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and recognize that this land, this country, this county can only be healed through our willingness to receive Christ and his forgiveness. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for the decisions that are being made now. Thank you for what you're accomplishing here. Lord, I just ask that you will be with us in a way that brings you credit. Be with these decisions. May they honor you as well. Lord, thank you. We lift you up above all mankind. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.